Please be seated. <laughs> Not to worry. Our gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 9, beginning at verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that has made him unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And I ask your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. He answered them, You faithless generation. How much longer must I be among you, and how much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them, he said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast, cast it out? He said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. Would you pray for me and with me? Bless, O oh Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts. O oh Lord, our rock, our only strength, and our redeemer. Amen. One of the great scholarly finds in the last century is a book called The Paris Magical papyrus. It's literally a collection of a cookbook for magical recipes from the ancient world that someone put together in order to sell for profit. If you need a little love spell, there's a recipe for whipping it up. 
if there's a competitor in your business world that you'd kind of like to poke a pin in, apparently there's a recipe for that. There is also a recipe for one possessed with demons. You take oil from unripened olives, mash it together with a plant called mustagia and lotus pith, boil it up with marjoram, and then you have to say the magic words. Something like abracadabra. And then you create this little phylactery. It's a, it's a little leather bag in which you put the recipe and you tie it around the person's neck. Then notice what must be said then. The words from the cookbook say, I adjure thee, demon, come out of him. I adjure thee by the God of the Hebrews, Yesu, Yehab, Yeah, Ebroelatos. At least it's something like that. <laughs> now, notice what we've gotten here. It's a pagan magic cookbook citing the God of the Hebrews with the name of Jesus as part of that special formula. And where on earth did they get that idea? Well, of course, they got it from the Gospels to deal with the really, really big stuff. You need more than a spell. Even the magicians knew you needed Jesus. In our scripture lesson this morning, the early church was fascinated with the demon possession, and they knew that it took a great deal to drive those demons out. In fact, in Mark's early text, it says it requires prayer. But in the later text, it even adds prayer and fasting. At issue is this man with a son who today likely would have been diagnosed with epilepsy. The fathers come to the disciples with high expectations. The disciples have done what they could, everything that they were taught to do, and they haven't been able to deliver. In fact, the boy's just as sick as he ever was. When Jesus comes into the commotion, he says, what are you arguing about? With his sickness unresolved, the father describes the boy's illness. Well, he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and his muscles get stiff. He convulses and it is bad. Now, I don't think it's any mistake that Jesus begins this conversation with the crowd and the disciples by asking that critical question, what are you arguing about? I imagine most of us would agree this morning that Methodism has been seizing for the past 40-odd years or so on how to navigate a healthy resolution 
that would leave our denomination intact. We have not, like the disciples, prayed long and hard over the healing of our wounds and found that it isn't quite done yet. What we know is that 66% of the United Methodist Church based within the United States voted on the one church plan. Two-thirds of this country. Now, by no means does that indicate that every one of those 66% delegates would have been on the same page. That vote didn't mean every congregation was ready to have same-gender weddings. It didn't mean that every congregation was ready to have a gay pastor. But a supporting vote for the One Church Plan simply acknowledged that there are churches and communities and contexts in which openness would allow for the sacred worth of all people to have skin on it. Our seizing is not yet over, and the Methodist patient is still in need of Jesus. It's no wonder that our scripture has Jesus ask the question and then respond to the disciples with something of a rebuke. He says, you faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I have to put up with you? In our Linton text, Magre de Vega suggests that rather than this being something of a rebuke, Jesus might rather be offering instead the terrible awareness that his life with the disciples is increasingly shorter. It's only a little bit longer that they're going to have him in the flesh to touch, to hear, to experience, and to watch. And if this is happening while he's still here, what in the world are they going to do when he's gone? What will they do when they don't have him right there to consult or to rescue? What are we to do when the issues are so large that all of our processes and strategies and special conferences don't bring about a healing for the pain we experience. Our scripture this morning reminds us that faith and faithfulness isn't easy. We cannot this morning be under the impression that believing or having faith means that we will face life's difficult situations without enormous struggle. Faith is not mere belief. Faith is when we submit our hearts, minds, souls, and strength to God who has revealed himself to us through scripture, tradition, and experience. It involves both our minds and our lives. 
A life of faith is by its very nature a battle, a battle to place our entire selves within the heart of Christ. To do so is to engage the struggle and then to engage our call to discipleship. I think Jesus was inviting us to dig in and face the pain. So let's just face it. Pretty much all of us are aware that the vote, even though the vote is over, has not and will not end the struggle. Several folks have called or visited the church office, dropped a note by or uh, sent an email, struggling with how to remain United Methodist. A number of folks have asked what I'm thinking. Well, I came away from the vote thinking mostly about you. How much I love Stony Brook Church and how deeply and dearly you have impacted my faith journey. I think about how graciously you were to uh, wrestle with the Living Faithfully classes and to stretch your understanding and be in genuine, caring conversations with each other, even while not agreeing. You amazed me and blessed me. I'm thinking about the youth in our congregation who are openly LGBTQ and those who wonder now if it's safe to come out. I've thought about the families who are supporting transgender children. I've thought about the active members of our church family who are gay and those who have family members and friends who identify as gay and who may no longer feel safe. I think about the young person within our Gehenna community that posted this week for Lent. Are Methodists going to give up just chocolate or will they give up hating gays as well? And I, like the Father, want to say to Jesus, this has happened since childhood, often casting us into the fire and into the water to destroy us. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. I've been thinking we've got to name the pain to engage it. Because pain never presents itself without opportunity. David Brooks, who is an op editor for uh, New York Times, wrote on the 18th of February an article entitled A Nation of Weavers. In it, he says, I start with pain. A couple times a week, I give a speech somewhere in the country about isolation and social fragmentation. Very often, a parent will come up to him afterward and say, my daughter took her life when she was 14. Or my son overdosed on painkillers. 
that kind of epidemic in our society. There's all kinds of pain. The African-American woman in Greenville who is indignant because young black kids in her neighborhood face injustice just as bad as she did in 1953. It is still, still alive and real. The college student in the Midwest who's convinced she, she's the only one haunted by compulsive thoughts about her unworthiness. Thousands of youth and adults are being lost to the opioid crisis. He says, these different kinds of pain share a common thread. Our lack of healthy connection to each other, our inability to see the full dignity of each other, and the resulting culture of fear, distrust, tribalism, shaming, and strife. But in his journeys, he's also discovered what he calls weavers. He said he's traveled all over the country, and it didn't matter if it was in Houston or Wilkesboro, North Carolina, big or small, you always find those people who are the threads within the community holding the fabric together. There's the vet who's working with mentally ill veterans in New Orleans. There's a guy in Appalachia who's teaching young boys how to box, but more than that, he's teaching them about life. Or the woman who's just about to leave Inglewood in Chicago when she sees two little girls playing with broken glass bottles, and she looks at her husband and says, oh, we cannot leave. We can't be just another family that abandons this place. There are weavers everywhere in life because that's what neighbors do. That's what the church is intended to do. We are to name the pain, asking what can be done. What can we do? Brooks goes on to say that we're living with the excesses of 60 years of hyper-individualism. There's a lot of emphasis in our culture on personal freedom, self-interest, self-expression, the idea that life is an individual journey. You do you, I'll do me. But weavers, he say, share an ethos that puts relationship over self. We're born into relationship, and the measure of our life is the quality of those relationships. We precedes me. And it doesn't matter if you live in red or blue America, they embody the same values, the deep traits of hospitality showing up for people in their need, and they keep showing up. He identifies the most important trait, though, of weavers, and he calls it radical mutuality. We are all completely equal, regardless of where society ranks us. I am broken, and you are broken, and we need each other to survive. It has changed our moral lens. 
Social scientists tell us that selfishness is natural. People are motivated by money, power, status, and the desire to win. But weavers are not motivated by any of those things. They want to live in right relation with others and to serve the community good. We must be aware that we share a moral ecology through the decisions of our daily lives. And whenever we stereotype, abuse, impugn motives, and lie about each other, we rip the social fabric and encourage more ugliness. But when we love across boundaries, when we listen patiently and see deeply and make someone feel known, we've rewoven it and reinforced generosity. Weavers name the pain to find the path. They show up and they keep showing up because that's where the cure begins. In verse 21, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening? And he says, from childhood. It's cast him into the fire and the water to destroy. But if there's anything you can do, have pity on us and help. And Jesus says to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Isn't it interesting that Jesus turns this statement around on the Father and says, if you are able, all things can be done for those who believe. It's like his lights come on and the Father gets it and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. De Vega makes a brilliant observation that within Greek there are no conjunctions. So when we try to translate that into English, we, we have often said, I believe, however, help my unbelief. Or I believe, therefore, help my unbelief. He believes that the better translation is, I believe, therefore, help me where I don't yet understand. Wesley put it this way, help thou mine unbelief, although my faith be so small that it might rather be termed unbelief, yet help me. In other words, there's a humility in this work we call church. It's faith within the struggle. It's understanding we are weavers as people of faith and that what Jesus was so impatient to have us understand is that it's time to name the pain. It's the right time to take the temperature, examine the patient. It's the perfect time to say, I believe, help me where I don't yet understand. So, 
Got one question for you. Could you name the one thing that every, every United Methodist Church would agree upon? There is one. Really, there is one. I'm not kidding. Every United Methodist Church agrees that they want to be welcoming. It's in our belief statement. So the question now in this struggle is, are we? Do persons of different races and cultures, persons of disability, persons belonging to the LGBTQ community, do they find mutual, radical mutuality here when they enter our doors? How are we doing? On a scale of 1 to 10, what do you know? Are we a 2 or are we a 6 or an 8? Now, this isn't a matter of who's pro or who's con, of what side you're on, but it is a sincere question. When folks come into Stony Brook Church, do they see and feel the power and presence of a living God at work within our midst? Do they experience us as disciples, as weavers? And do they witness the humility in our work which says, we don't have all the answers, but by golly, we're going to be smart enough to ask. Now, I can tell you right now who I'm not going to ask. As a middle-aged, white, heterosexual, relatively healthy-bodied individual, I can tell you, I don't have a clue. We've got to ask those for whom the experience applies. And I want you to know that I have a crystal clear understanding of the church I want to be with you. More than ever, we need to examine and articulate how we're going to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The world's looking at us right now. The Gehenna community is watching us right now to see what our response will be. I'd like to ask the leadership board to do some serious work within the next six months examining just how well we're doing. How are we doing with loving God, loving others, and serving the world? Not only must we do the homework to be clear about how we're doing, then we've got to communicate it clearly of who we intend to be, what we mean about our welcome, and how we're going to hold ourselves accountable to the task of the family of God. This is a tremendous opportunity. We are community weavers. 
We're willing to name the pain. We are humbly able to examine ourselves and to say, I believe, therefore help me where I don't yet understand. Thanks be to God, we're a family in all of that. Amen.